started to realize, I was like, you know, maybe that wasn't the best idea that I thought it would be. But I, I'll tell you why it is a good idea. If, if Luke wrote it and could write it like that, then I think we could say it in church. But I sort of apologize, sort of don't. So I was talking to Duke this morning, and he was, he was looking at my, my sermon notes because he runs my slides. And he, I was like, I was going to say, you know, I'm not a big movie watcher. He's like, John, that's a lie. And I said, I don't think that's a lie. I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, but anyways, there's one movie and you would think so that why I say I'm not a big movie watcher is cause you probably think so. Cause that's been like the intro for like half my sermons, but you guys are really relatable with it. I mean, we, we, we talked about, uh, one of those Westerns and there's another Western today that I kind of want to sneakily use as a transition. And it's a story with a deep and complex moral implication. It's about a kind of about treasure hunting, right? And this movie is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And better than anything, the song has, the movie has one of the greatest soundtracks ever. Like, just, just incredible. Listen to the Danish orchestra. Um, but the movie, of course, it follows three bounty hunters who are all in search for a, for a hidden treasure. And they're all motivated uh, by self-interest and the survival of their own lives. And so no character, what's funny about this movie, and it kind of made it a first of its kind, is no character really fits into the traditional hero role or the traditional villain role. Clint Eastwood's character, who is considered the good, is not your tra traditionally good hero. He has a moral code, but it's often very tainted by his self-interest to find the treasure. And then you see it with the other two guys, who are the bad and the ugly. You know, they work within a certain ethical code, but they're not afraid to step over that boundary to in order to get what they want. And uh, they kind of walk the same line. So essentially, the movie sees their self self-interest blur these lines between what is good and what is bad as they and they switch allegiances they manipulate each other for self games so the movie makes it really difficult to judge a character for who he is it makes it super difficult to dif to judge if that character is either good or bad or ugly hence the title of the movie and there's a lot of moral ambiguity and this is going to sound strange and you don't think you're heretical at first but the bible is similar in that it has a moral ambiguity to it. And it's not the same way as this movie does. You know, there's not moral ambiguity in terms of what is right and wrong, but there is moral ambiguity in terms of what in the Bible is actually good, what is bad, or what is ugly, regarding certain stories, regarding certain characters, and, re and regarding certain Bible truths as they are revealed and as they unfold. So even in the Bible, it can be hard to see, and we discussed this in class, it can be hard to see what in the Bible is good, what in the Bible is bad, and what in the Bible is ugly. And that's the reason we read the Luke 3 geology. Because it proves my point, it proves the Bible's point, that there is a lot of confusion upon what is good and what is bad and what is ugly. If you look at some of these people, and if you look at the people used that are used by God in the Bible to advent Jesus Christ into the world, you'll find that there are a lot of prostitutes, there are a lot of pimps, there's a lot of adulterers and murderers, there's liars and there's lunatics, and there's killers and there's kings. There's a bunch of different people who have a bunch of messed up lives. But it's funny to see that God uses the good, the bad, and the ugly stories all to unfold and to reveal and to reconcile and to restore and to advent. And that's the season that starts today is Advent season, preparing for Christmas time. It's the season we're entering. The Advent season means we're bringing Jesus Christ to the earth. We're warming up to the arrival. We're getting ready. What's funny is we see all kinds of men and women and all kinds of good, bad, and ugly stories and circumstances, and we see all kinds of good, bad, and ugly miracles and the like. And so our goal before Christmas is really to explore 
uh, two or three different Bible passages to see just how true this is, to see how God uses what is good, He uses what is bad, and He even uses what is ugly. And that ultimately, that God works all things out for good, right? He does. Our scripture today is not Luke 3. I won't read it again. But our scripture today is Genesis chapter 50, verses 14 through 21. Genesis chapter 50, verses 14 through 21. All right. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? And so they sent word to Joseph, and they said, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask that you forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. Verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. And they said, we are your servants. We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid for am I in the place of God. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done. And what is now being done is the saving of many lives. And so then, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you, and I'll provide for your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, fix our hearts and minds to be attentive to your scripture that has been handed down generation to generation by uh, the faithful before us, and most of all by the Holy Spirit who inspired the scripture itself. Edify our hearts, open them to hear your word, Lord. If anything I say is not from you, don't don't let it be said. Uh, I pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right. Who was this your first Sunday Bible school story? By any chance? I can go ahead and guess because it was for me in Miss Debbie Reiner's pre-K class. The first Bible assignment I ever had in church was to color in Joseph's coat of many colors. You remember. I know y'all remember. I know this generation remembers that. You had some crayons and you're coloring the coat of many colors. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And we're going to focus on this part of the family today to find the good and the bad and the ugly. You could take anything from this story. This is probably my favorite Bible story aside from the gospel itself, okay? Um, look at the dysfunctional family. Very dysfunctional family. You can get something out of that. You can get other things out of it and talk about you know, historic comebacks or wisdom about business and sexual integrity, about forgiveness. But honestly, the entire design of this story and then really the entire design of the Bible itself is really something else. And it's really meant to reveal to you one thing, and that is that God in his divine providence works through humanity's brokenness. He works through the ugly. He works through the bad, bad even when there is no good, all in the advent of good itself. And so we're going to ask three questions. It has to do exactly with what we've been talking to that about today. The three questions are this. Number one, what is the ugly? Number two, what is the bad? And number three, because we have to end with good, what is the good? What is the good in this passage? So what is the ugly in this passage? Let's read verses 15 through 17. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And so they sent word to Joseph, and they said, Your father left us these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I said, you forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, 
says that Joseph wept. What's interesting about this passage, you may not initially notice this. You do notice that the brothers are clearly afraid, and that they're clearly insecure because they're at the judgment seat of their brother. But most most theologians and most commentators agree, and I would agree too, that what they just said was a lie. I don't know if you see that, but they actually, the conspiring brothers conspire again to save their rear ends. That's exactly what happens here. Verse 15, if you look at it, it says, pretty much they put their fear and they put their reasoning on display. And they, you know, pretty much in conclusion, it says, Joseph will hate us again. He'll destroy us. In verse 16, you want to know if it's lie. They said, so let's say this. That's a lie. So they come up with this and they say, let's save our rear ends. Let's get out of the judgment day that we're about to approach. And then we look at Joseph. And what does Joseph do is he weeps. He knows about the lie. He knows it's a lie. He knows they made it up. And you can just imagine all that he's gone through. And you know that he is absolutely entitled to kill his brothers. He's absolutely entitled to entitled to do whatever he wants to do with them. Um, and they should be insecure. And there's a reason they should be in, insecure. And that's because of the past ugliness, their past ugliness. And I'll sum it up. It's hard to summarize the past 14 chapters of Genesis right here, but I'm going to do it anyway. 20 years earlier in the land of Canaan, there's a family. It's the Hebrew family of Jacob and his 12 sons, okay? And of those 12, Jacob favored one son above all the rest, right? Do you remember? That's why he gave him the coat of many colors. That son that he favored was Joseph. God knew that Jacob favored Joseph. The brothers knew that God, that Jacob favored Joseph. And Joseph knew that Jacob favored Joseph, okay? And I was What's really interesting about this is Joseph is not the totally innocent brother that you think he is, okay? I think in this passage, Moses actually kind of made him out to be uh, not totally pure, but actually that he flaunted the fact that he was dad's favorite. He flaunted it. He wore the coat of many colors around. He bragged about it. When he had the dreams that his brothers would bow down to him, he told them. He's more of the brother that you may have had, either older or younger, who is really the spoiled, cocky brother who kind of gets what he wants when you don't get it. And so the brothers have every reason to be a little angry. The brothers are envious, okay, for good reason. They, you know, they ask, you know, why does the brat, why does the brat we deserve? We're older. Why don't we get the inheritance? Why don't we get dad's favor? He was the favorite. And so what does any older brother do? Well, they say, how do we get back at him? Except unlike me, speaking from personal experience, his brothers decided not to take duct tape him to the back of a chair or to chase him around in the backyard with a BB gun. Like I said, personal experience. Actually, it's far worse. It's far uglier. And they decided that they would kill their own brother. That's how jealous they were. That's how envious they were of what Joseph had. So what they do is they drag him off to a far pasture, and they dump him in a well, and they leave him to die. And actually, after they leave him to die, they actually sit beside the well, and they actually eat lunch. They have a picnic. I don't remember if you remember the story, but they have a picnic. And they're having a picnic to the sound of their own brother's screams, which is pretty gruesome. That's pretty ugly. And then we come to this point when Judah, by the way, who's the ringleader, decides, I have another idea. He starts to see these Ishmaelite traders coming on. They're actually slavers. And he says, why don't we actually sell Joseph? And you were probably taught in your Bible school, and I was taught in my Bible school, that Judah was the merciful one. You're taught that Judah was the compassionate one. And I'm going to tell you something different. And a lot of theologians and commentators also split over this. Judah is not the merciful one, actually, in this passage. If you actually look at it, it is far worse to sell your brother to pagan slavers who could do anything with him than to kill him. Judah 
and his brothers would much rather give him a life full of death rather than just give him the execution block right in the instant. They say, so let's sell him, and we'll make some money off of him. They actually sell him for 20 shekels of silver. They sell the little brother. They sell their own blood. Um, you can kind of see how just jealousy and envy and, and, and rage and hate just drives them to do something so terrible. And the brothers return to dad. They frame the whole situation, and Jacob realizes falsely, he's not it's not actually didn't actually happen, but he realizes that his son must have been killed by a wild wild animal. The blood was spattered on his coat, and what happens to Dad is that it kills him and it crushes him and it devastates him. It says in, in chapter thirty seven that Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And it says that all his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but they could not comfort him because his grief was so bad. Um, and he said this. He said, "I shall go down to death with my son mourning." Thus his father wept for him. Do you want to see the ugly in the Bible? Do you want to see the ugly in this Bible passage? It's right there. It's the weeping. It's the devastation. It's the soul devastation. And the ugly really isn't about so much what happens to Joseph in this passage as much as the ugly is about what happens to Judah and to his brothers and to their father. It's really the ugly. The ugly is really the hard heart. And the ugly is really the attitude that says, it will kill dad, but the sacrifice is will worth it. And in the general sense, the true ugly is this. Because this is a reflection of our entire history. Do you see what man is capable of? To what lengths we will go to do something. The lengths we will go to satisfy a gratification craving. And the gratification craving in this story comes at the expense of their own father's joy and really at their own moral integrity, okay? And you start to see just how ugly we are too. When you have this attitude that says, we'll show him, right? We'll kill him, we'll remove the obstacle, it'll kill dad, but it's worth it. And that attitude, what it does is it reigns in their hearts, it reigns in the heart of Judah, and the life starts to get sucked out of them. And the life starts to get sucked out of everybody else around them, and death is born into the world. And I ask again, are you and I much different in our state? I would never kill my brother, but I have done things that are not just as bad, but I have done things that are bad in the search for self-gratification. But look at the broad history of man. Look in the past 100 years at the things that have happened in our history. We're animals. From the individual person to governments, we are animals. We will go to any lengths to meet our appetite for self-gratification to be God. But the fact is, when we seek to be God, when we seek to gratify, and we seek to get the obstacle out of the way, rather than serving and obeying God, and serving and bowing to perhaps who our brother is, all it does is it steals, and it kills, and it destroys. And it's the same ugliness in the story that is much, it's not so much a taste of who we are, but it's really the reality of who we are. It breeds death, and our lives are ruined. So no wonder they lie to Joseph. You can go to the next slide, Duke. No wonder they know their ugliness. And it brings them to this point, their sin brings them to this point, and we'll ask the next question, but it brings us to the point uh, where they stand before their judge. They sin against Joseph, they sin against their father, they sin against their God, and the verdict is in. Which leads us to the next question, what is the bad? We know the ugly, what is the bad? The bad is this, it's called consequences, right? So simple. The consequence is, is that their search for self-gratification ever, never actually gave them that self-gratification they wanted, right? No total gratification in the end. And their past ugliness has led them to the bad situation of present. On the ground, 
As Joseph's servants, they beg for mercy before Joseph. You see that their sin has led them full circle. That's the bad, is that the ugly comes full circle. And the consequence, yes, Joseph was sold into slavery, but the consequence ultimately, like I said, is that search for gratification leads them to regret, and it leads them to a day of a reckoning of judgment, okay? And how did that work out to this present situation? Let's continue the story. And the story is fascinating, right? Like I said, it's the best, one of the best Bible stories there is. And I think other religions would kill to have this good of a story. And you can take, and I said this earlier, but you can take almost any moral story from the story of Joseph. You can talk about how moral excellence could lead to prosperity. You can talk about financial integrity, business integrity, sexual integrity. You can talk about the fruit of having wisdom. You can talk about the fruit of the reward of faith. There are many selling points. But as I mentioned earlier, the divine providence of God is the point of the story. The sovereignty of God is the point of story. Because what happens is, although Judah and his brothers sold their brother Joseph into a, a position of slavery, the exact opposite happens. Joseph ends up into a position of authority. He ends up into the position as essentially the governor of Egypt, prime minister of Egypt. He's really the functioning authority in Egypt, because really all Pharaoh does is he sits back and he acts as, as, as the... I guess, the symbolic figure in Egypt. Joseph is the ruling authority. He actually gets stuff done. And the kind comes when Egypt has a famine. And God prepares Joseph. And God helps Joseph to prepare Egypt. And if you know anything about a, a famine in Egypt, there is, in Egypt, I guess this is like the geography theology, but think about Egypt is that there's a tiny sliver of land that runs along the Nile that provides all the food and all the provision, not just for Egypt, but all the way up for Canaan. For the region around Egypt. And so when there is no rain, there is no food. And when there is no food, there is no life. And like I said, it's regional. There are historic accounts that parents would be driven so far because they were starving that they would eat their own children. They would eat their own children. But Joseph, who is intently blessed by God with wisdom, strategically decides to store up food and to preserve the lives of millions based upon his dreams and the interpretation of his dreams. And so, like I said earlier, too, the drought hits Canaan, right? The drought hits Canaan. Um, the drought hits Canaan. Lost my notes. The drought hits Canaan, and Jacob, what he does is he sends the brothers, because like I said, they're at the point of starving. So he sends his brothers to where? Egypt, right? Who happens to be governing Egypt at this time? Right, Joseph. And so they come face to face with their little brother, Joseph, and they don't know it, but Joseph does know it. And what Joseph does is he weeps and he hurts and he remembers. And so what does he do? He decides to toy with them a little. He wants to test their integrity. He wants to see, are these the same men that sold me off into slavery that are now standing before me begging me for food? So what he does, he says, all right, prove your story. Prove the story about your family. Prove the story that you actually need food. He says, what I want you to do is go back home and bring the little brother back that you talked about. So the brothers do. The brothers go back to Canaan. They go back to Jacob. And they, they tell Jacob about this, but Jacob is incredibly reluctant, and he's reluctant for a reason. He's reluctant for two years, because the question that Jacob asks is, how could I give up another son? You see, once Jacob lost his favorite son, he decided who his new favorite son was. So he cannot stand, he cannot bear, it would devastate him to give up another son. But because starvation is a very motivational factor, he decides to send the brothers back with Benjamin back down to Egypt. And so they return to Joseph. The story is true, and Joseph says, okay, I'll return you with the food. But what he does is he plants a chalice from the royal house inside the saddle of Benjamin. 
and he toys with them more. And so the brothers go out, and then Joseph's servant comes running after him and says, someone's stolen from the royal house. One of you is stolen, right? And uh, we come to the point in the story where the brothers are like, no, we're men of integrity. We did not steal. But as we know, Joseph planted it there. And they search for the chalice, and they find it in the saddleback of who? Benjamin, the favored son. And according to the servant of Joseph, it is the one who is found, it is the thief who is found who will have to be the slave of Joseph. So what just happens again? Apparently, Jacob loses his favored son, right? It's actually not exactly what happened. Do you remember Judah, the brother who has sold his youngest brother into slavery? Do you remember that? Something flips and something changes. And we come to this moment here where we start to see transformation. Judah says instead, instead of saying, let's sell the boy, he says, let me, your servant, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. He would now rather sell him himself in exchange for his brother's freedom in exchange for his father's joy. Is at this moment of grace where Joseph realizes his brothers do have that integrity, where they have a repentant heart, that he reveals himself to his betrayers and their sin confronts them. The bad confronts them. The judgment arrives, but like I said, Rather than condemning them in wrath, he comforts them in mercy, which leads us to our passage right now. Like I said, the ugly, devastation, death is born. The bad, the sin and the devastation and the ugliness comes full circle, right? And the bad is that the ugliness of sin and the past mistakes leads us to this inevitable moment where we come in Genesis chapter 50, where the judgment comes again. Because you see what happens is Jacob dies. And the brothers thought the mercy of Joseph was purely because their father was still living and because Joseph loved his father. But we start to get a different picture here. Even in their fear, something else happens. And we ask the question, what is the good? What is the good? We know the ugly. We know the bad. What is the good? It says in verse 17, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask that you forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. And his brothers then came, and they threw themselves down before him, and they said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, for I am, am I in the place of God. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, which is the saving of many lives. He says, So don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to him. I said earlier that the ugly comes full circle, right? The bad is that the ugly comes full circle. They're on the chopping block. And in order to answer what is the good, we must answer another question. And the question that we must answer is, why does Joseph say, don't be afraid? To answer why does Joseph says, don't be afraid, we need to ask, why does Joseph weep? Right? Why does Joseph weep in this moment? It's funny, uh, with this Bible passage, really if you look at the last 14 chapters of Genesis, that Moses writes this very strategically. And I'd love to go into all the theology and what the commentators say and how poetic it is, the literary style, but I don't have time for it. But there are seven places in this story, in the story of Joseph, where Joseph weeps. And you have to understand why Joseph weeps in order to understand what the good of this story is, in order to understand the providence of God. And like I said, there are seven scenes where Joseph weeps. In Genesis 42, the brothers recount their ugly past, Joseph weeps. In Genesis 43, when Benjamin is brought back to Egypt, Joseph weeps. In Genesis 45, when Joseph prepares to reveal himself, he weeps. And it says that all the Egyptians heard him. His dwelling was so bad that even Pharaoh heard him and felt sorry for him. In Genesis 45, again, 
It is when he reveals himself and embraces his brothers, and he weeps on them. In Genesis 46, when Joseph meets his father, he weeps. In Genesis 50, when Jacob dies, he weeps. And in Genesis 50, where we are now, when the brothers lie, like I said, when they conspire in fear of vengeance, when they are most helpless, Joseph weeps. Why does he weep? The answer is found in the ugly and in the bad. The ugly is that their sin has destroyed relationships. It has ruined lives. The bad is that their sin has brought them full circle before the judgment seat of the prime minister of Egypt, who just happens to be their brother. But the good is this. Although they doubt their judge's mercy, what is the reality? The reality is that Joseph has already forgiven his brothers, right? Did he forgive them because they made up for what they had done in the past? No. They could never make up for what they did in the past. They can't make up for selling their brother into slavery. Of course not. So how could he forgive them? What do you think the answer is? To how could he forgive his brothers? God's will, of course. But God's will through Joseph was what? He gave them love, right? Not just love, but self-sacrificial love. What happens here is he has forgiven them purely because he unconditionally loves his brothers regardless of what they've done. Because what Joseph does here is he gives up his power, his ruling power to judge and to execute his brothers. And instead of condemning them, he decides to free them and to take care of them. So again, I ask, what is the good? I want to show you the good of this entire passage. If Joseph had not been sold into slavery, he would not have been sold into Potiphar's house. If Joseph had not been sold in Potiphar's house, he never would have been put in prison. If Joseph had never been put in prison, he would have never met Pharaoh and interpreted his dreams. If Joseph would have never met Pharaoh and interpreted his dreams, he never would have became prime minister. If Joseph would have never became prime minister, he would have never saved Egypt. If he never saved Egypt, he never would have saved his family. And it doesn't end there. If he doesn't save his family, there is no Hebrew nation. If there is no Hebrew nation, there is no tribe of Judah. If there is no tribe of Judah... There is no man named Jesus of Nazareth born to a virgin Mary. If there is no man named Jesus of Nazareth, there is no Messiah. If there is no Messiah, there is no atonement, and there is no death. And if there is no atonement, and there is no death. There is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, there is no salvation for you and I. That's the good of this Bible passage. When I talk about divine providence, do you understand what I mean? How could something that happened 4,000 years ago affect you and I? Well, it just so happens the preservation of 12 brothers is the reason that we are here today worshiping in the assembly. It's the reason why. So do you see it? What is our own good? What is our own bad? What is our own ugly? And who is our Joseph? Our ugly is that our brokenness and our search for false gratification only steals, kills, and destroys life. And it steals, kills, and it destroys hope, joy, and peace. And our ugly is that we had a brother too. And we sold him to a cross. And our ugly is that we sold the only good person in this world, the favored son of God, into his death. And the bad is that we must face a day of reckoning before that son. We will come full circle to his judgment seat. But the good is this, and it's found in Genesis 50, verse 20. The good of the entire Bible. One of the most important Bible passages. And it's got two of my favorite words in there. We all know what those are. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about the many people that should be kept alive. Joseph thought he was talking about Egypt, and he thought he was talking about his family. 
and he could not ever have imagined that it meant actually millions and billions of souls, that what God, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Let me explain it to you. Our Joseph, Jesus Christ, he came down, the beloved son. He was sold into slavery on our behalf, and he was raised up, not raised up to power on a throne, but he was raised up to powerlessness onto a tree. Big difference is that there he forgave your ugly, and he forgave your ugly because he took your ugly as if it was his, 2 Corinthians 5.21. But God meant that even the greatest evil that ever occurred was the sacrifice of his son to pagans, to pagan Gentiles, and to Jews. God meant that greatest evil ever for the greatest good ever, which was the saving of you and me and millions before and after us. And just as Joseph wept when he forgave out of unconditional sacrificial love, Jesus Christ wept on the cross because if there are no tears, there is no transformation. If there is no ugliness, there is no good. There's beauty in the shame. This is from a song. There's beauty in the shame. There's glory in the pain. The wonderful, ugly cross. I like what Tim Keller said. Way to quote him another week, but I'll, here I'll go. And he said this. He said, the good is this. He said, we are more sinful and we are more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The brothers of Joseph were more sinful and more flawed than they ever would have dared believe, but they were more, more loved and accepted by their brother Joseph than they would have ever dared hope. One day, everything comes full circle, and you will stand face to face before the one that you betrayed. And I pray that you do not stand as the brothers who were fearing. Remember the good. Christ said, it is finished. And as the brothers, just as the brothers were, you're not forgiven on any account of your own, right? Did the brothers make up for betraying their brother to be forgiven? They didn't. We can't make up for betraying our brother, Jesus Christ. You have skeletons, you have ugly, you have mistakes, you have sins, you have guiltiness, you have brokenness, you have been hurt, you've been the source of hurt. But no matter the screw up, no matter the hurt, no matter the hang up, no matter the hell your life may have been, it can be forgiven, and more than it can be forgiven. The awesome thing about God is He doesn't just forgive what we have done. Sometimes He actually uses what we have done for the ultimate good. Now, I'll tell you how great our God is. And I said it earlier when we were in class. God is so sovereign, and He has so much divine providence, that just as we, as we see in the story of Joseph and his brothers, He's able to take something weak, He's able to take something powerless, He's able to take something that is worthless, and He's able to take something that is ugly and horrendous. And he's able to use it for good. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Luke 3 genealogy says. That's today's lesson. That's the story of your own life, believe it or not. And it goes to Advent, these three truths, three truths altogether. It's that Jesus is the promised Savior. Your story, Luke 3, the Bible, Jesus is the promised Savior. He is the Lion of who? Judah. He is the son of, as we'll look at next week, of David. He is the rescuer. He is the betrayed who forgives his betrayers. Number two, that God uses our ugliness to advent Jesus Christ into our own lives. If we're not broken, if we're not ugly, how can we ever become made good? And third, God also uses our ugliness to advent Jesus Christ into the lives of those around us as well. But there's more on next week. I don't want you to miss it. I'm actually way more excited about that sermon than this one, so I hope you'll be here for it. Let's go ahead and pray.